Welcome to the Reiki Show, hosted by Bronwyn and Franz Diener of the International House of Reiki. Bronwyn and Franz teach Reiki around the globe and are the authors of the Reiki Sourcebook, The Japanese Art of Reiki, The Reiki Techniques Card Deck, and the soon-to-be-released A to Z of Reiki. The music you are listening to, Reiki Khan, is available at the International House of Reiki website, www.reiki.net.au Hi, my name's Bronwyn. And I'm Franz. And today we have with us Reverend Gion Prosser. He is a fully ordained priest of the Tendai Buddhist sect and has lived for a decade in Japan. Today he lives in America. What we'd like to talk about is that many Reiki practitioners today believe that Usui Mikao, the founder of the system of Reiki, was a Tendai practitioner. He may have been a Tendai lay priest, we're not sure. But we do know for a fact that after he died in 1926, that he was buried in the grounds of a Pure Land Buddhist temple in Tokyo. So we've got lots of questions for Sensei today, and some of them are historical, some are practical, and I'm sure it'll be a great discussion. Welcome, Sensei. Well, thank you very much. I guess the first place we'd like to start is just to find out a little bit about Tendai and what it actually is. Sure. I think uh, specifically for uh, the West, Tendai uh, represents a very little-known sect that, or school of, of uh, mainland Buddhism that ironically was at the forefront of developing uh, what now we think of as the main schools, the Pure Land schools, the Zen schools, the Nichiden school. Uh, Tendai has been called the, the mother of Japanese Buddhism, I think rightly so, because it, it brings to bear some uh, very tangible, introspective ideas of what it means to, uh, to figure out our own lives. Uh, it brings to bear some wonderful methods of meditation, uh, a lot of flavor, because the Japanese uh, added to their original uh, inherited Tiantai Chinese sect, so they've added in a lot of uh, advanced practices, such, a, such as esoteric practices, um, pure land visualizations, walking practices, a lot of things that uh, really added depth to uh, what it means to comprehensively uh, achieve enlightenment in this lifetime. So maybe uh, Tendai's best uh, nickname is as the, uh, the kind of overall Buddhist sect that seems to appeal to the widest, most diverse range of people. For that reason, is it a very popular sect in Japan? Uh, I think, uh, you know, if we look back in history, uh, if we're going to roll back, say, a thousand years or so, yes, that's a dominant player uh, after Nara Buddhism uh, sort of tips its hats, uh, hat to more uh, progressive movements in the Heian era. But unfortunately, recently, uh, Heian can't be, or Tendai can't be said to be a, a major school, primarily because it's very complicated and has a, uh, it's overshadowed with a lot of dogma, which is ironic because at its base, it's a very simple Mahayana, uh, pure land practice, uh, esoteric practice. Everything is viewed in light of that very simple stance. Unfortunately, today, it's, it's a rather small school in Japan and even smaller here in the West. Would you say that Tendai is mainly Japanese, even though it does have the Chinese origins? Yes, today uh, the word uh, Tendai is is a reading of the original Tiantai or uh, Heaven's Platform, uh, two characters. But to this day, it remains very, very uh, Japanese, uh, without a lot of Western 
flavor primarily because it hasn't had the chance to migrate into these cultures and been given the time to, to germinate and really pick up a lot of the flavor and creativity of, of Western Buddhism, which is much more uh, probing and introspective and asks questions and it, it, uh, it investigates Buddhism for a platform that most Japanese I want to call them congregation members or temple goers. Just wouldn't even dream of of asking, uh, but but wonderful, inquisitive, uh, probing Western people have have no qualms. They'll they'll be the first to investigate the school from a, from their own perspective. Usui Mikau, the founder of Reiki, he was buried in a Pure Land temple grounds in 1926. Would that mean that he was Pure Land or Tendai? How does that work? Maybe after the Meiji era, so we're talking the late 1800s, a lot of those temples were undergoing a kind of uh, revival and, and, and banding together and, and coming into uh, one sect or another where they originally may have changed hands. So being born in a Pure Land temple might have only proved that he, he had family connections to that. He, he could have very well been ordained uh, under the Tendai sect and been buried in a Pure Land temple. They don't see any... Uh, discursiveness with that. It may have been some family ties, but I think also during that time, uh, it's right after the Meiji period has come into being, we're into the 1920s, the 30s and 40s, and uh, World War II having yet come to be, so a lot of that time period was uh, kind of a collaboration, I think, amongst Buddhist sects. Talking about Tendai moving into Pureland and Nichiren Buddhism, can you talk a little bit about the concept of lineage within that? Yeah, it's a, it's a very critical point, specifically in Tendai. Uh, when I first entered the Tendai sect, it was highly stressed that a, a, a lineage link had to be maintained between uh, master or ajari and student or this uh, disciple or deshi, so that that link uh, stretched back. Uh, you were able to trace yourself, obviously, to your teacher, to his teacher, all the way up through this lineage, and it was a, a very comforting safety blanket of sorts because you knew that somebody just didn't go off and say, gosh, I, uh, I thought of this on my own and I, I, I want to I make a completely uh, new school. So that in Tendai, that, that lineage is, is given to us in this chart, Kechimyakufu, which lists our own name right down to the bottom. And of course, our teacher's one leg up and, boy, his teacher's up there. But as we see, boy, 5, 6, 7, 10, 15, 20, 25, 100 links up are some really amazing personalities that, uh, although we feel this this uh, big stretch of time between ourselves and these amazing Buddhist teachers, really, I mean, there's, there's no gap at all if we if we consider Tendai and all pure, viable streams of Buddhism as just a mind stream of transmission. So I think it's specifically uh, in Tendai, and maybe that's because it has a, a strong esoteric transmission within it, that that, that sense of mind to mind, uh, a drop of water from one vessel to another is, is a pretty critical part of Tendai to this day. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that process? Uh, within the system of Reiki, we do have, a, have the concept of lineage. We also have the concept of something which in Japan was called Reiju, and in the West it's sort of transformed, and it also has a new name, which is attunement. The Reiju itself, we've been told by some Tendai practitioners that it is similar to a Tendai practice called Goshimbo. 
And I was wondering if, if you could just explain a little bit about this mind-to-mind -mind experience, and perhaps that relates to some of the things that we know in Reiki. Sure. Um, it was interesting. You, you taught me this past week uh, so much about Deju. I listened to your podcast on it. As I understand it, Deju may be closest this this act of blessing or transference or uh, electrical, spiritual transmission between uh, vessel and vessel may be closest to uh, something we call intendaya kanjo or initiation, a blessing, a, a consecration. And in one of those is this practice that you mentioned, uh, the Goshenbo. This is transmitted from teacher to pupil in a, in a very quiet, uh, personal setting. Um, it, it's required that uh, the pupil receive this from his or her teacher uh, orally, uh, so, so by word of mouth. It isn't something we can pick up a book and, of course, we could because it's written down in, in a lot of books out there. Uh, we could uh, copy, we could make our hands into these really uh, esoteric hand postures and we might even be able to scan the internet and find these esoteric mantras and get a little bit of this and that on, the, on what we're supposed to think about. But uh, unless we've really got our teacher there to, to fill in the gaps and to show us uh, the heartfelt manner, and I think that's that's the personal part of it. What what comes from our teacher, his or her heart, their own uh, training in the method, their own practice. Without that, and we, we believe in Tendai that that is transmitted uh, in a very mysterious way. It isn't something we need to worry about. It isn't something we need to figure out or scientifically analyze. Uh, a little bit of the mystery is the comfort of knowing that our our spiritual progression or development, whatever word we want to call it, is kind of being cradled. Our teacher's taking that responsibility. And when he or she passes quite extensive teachings such as Goshimbo or Kanjo or, or these Deju, that, that is a that's a gift. That's a that's a heart to heart, as we say in Japanese, Ishin Denshin, from from one mind to another, uh, between almost as if two vessels. If we if we took a vase and we poured water from one vase to another that Nothing was tainted, nothing changed. It was the, the crystal pure purity of that water flowing from one vessel to another. In it, if I listen to it correctly, there's as well like the concept of becoming one between the student and the teacher. Well, I think very much so. Um, you know, in the West, we, we get all hung up with this word called intimate because there's so many trappings that it has. But... Uh, Primarily, the, the spiritual quest is, a, is an incredibly intimate thing. It's so hard to to transfer what happens within one person to another, but that relationship between the teacher and the student is a is a highly intimate thing. Think about uh, the, the trust that you're going to place in another human vessel who has taints and isn't perfect, uh, who has his or her ups and downs, to to share with you his or her own best evaluation. And that, that teacher has to be uh, on their guard a lot, uh, how, how best to present those teachings. But when that line uh, sort of disintegrates between teacher and student, and, and this is a tough part in Japanese society because that line is <laughs> very clearly drawn, and it's, it's something we don't ever make a mistake about in Japanese circles. But I think in the West, as that line disappears and the, and the teacher becomes one's uh, best spiritual friend, uh, maybe stern at times, maybe compassionate at times, but completely uh, dedicated to his or her 
disciple's best interests, and likewise, the, the student is is dedicated toward supporting, uh, sometimes challenging uh, the teacher to to be on his or her best toes. When someone learns Goshimbo or or is shown how to do Goshimbo in uh, Tendai. In comparison to, for example, with Reiki, people might do a weekend course or might do Reiki 1, 2, and 3 really quickly, and then we learned its particular ritual. How long would it take, or on what particular level would a Tendai practitioner learn Kojimbo? Sure. On, on the traditional level, if we're just talking about, uh, put this in quotes, what would happen in Japan? Uh, yeah. Someone would be ordained, they would go back to their head temple, they would wait a period of one year, they would train with their teacher and uh, experience a lot about Buddhism and how to scrub the floors and how to clean toilets and all that. And finally, they'd go to seminary where uh, they'd be given a couple gates to pass through. And uh, they'd go through a couple months of training, uh, one very large uh, three-day session of prostrations. And finally, uh, if they graduated through that and they had kind of proven their mettle, it's a very uh, prove-it-or-lose-it type of environment in Japan, they would be given this esoteric kanjo or initiation or consecration by the master to study esoteric rites. And at that point, their first esoteric rite that they would uh, learn would be the Goshimbo, but the Goshimbo or five-segment uh, protection method. And the characters literally used for that use the, use the kanji for body or shin, so the go shin, the go is protect, shin is literally body, and, and bo is, is, is way or method. Uh, when we speak about the body in specifically Japanese Buddhism, we don't only mean the physical body. We mean the oral body or the, uh, the body that is uh, a manifestation of the spiritual body that lives within one. So it's, so it's a pretty deep symbolism there. They would learn the go shin bo, uh, have to memorize uh, these five different mudras and mantras, which are then followed by two more secret, esoteric, uh, kind of capping mudras and mantras. They'd learn how to pronounce the mantras the way their teacher does, uh, be given some esoteric visualizations on, on what to be creatively engendering inside their mind. And at that point, once they've got the uh, very, very rudimentary basics down, the, the how to ride a bicycle 101, their teacher then would expose the pupil to more advanced, intimate insights. And, and this is the kuden. This is what you, you can't read from the internet. You can't read from a book uh, because it's so incredibly personal, uh, teacher to teacher. And, and specifically at seminary, you, you're learning the highest teacher's kuden. So whoever's the top dog at the seminary class would be giving you his or her own insights in addition to all of the masters which, is, which have preceded he or she. So, so I think it is. It's a pretty intimate thing, uh, fairly high level in in strict, strict Japanese circles, but possibly when it's taught here in the West, it may be given in a more uh, liberal environment, where people are able to take a little bit of the theology out of the Goshimbo and maybe strike more toward the practicality of it. Apparently, Usui Mikao had taken different aspects of things that he knew and put them together to create the system of Reiki. So in that sense, I guess it does make sense. I think so. Uh, specifically, uh, we've spoken in the past about uh, specifically mudras, 
Um, I think there's there's a lot of uh, documentation on um, where some of the specific Reiki hand postures may have come from. And uh, I, not knowing Reiki at a high level like yourselves, wouldn't be able to say, uh, does it replicate the, the three factors that most of our own Mikyo does, and that would be the, the Shinku-i, or the Shin is the body posture, Ku is the mind visualization, and E is the vocalized intent or the actual mantra. So at least in, in Japanese Mikyo, we need those three particles called the, the Sanmitsu really to engender any kind of effect or spiritual resonance. Now, in, in Reiki, if those, if those type of things are, what's the best word, leveraged or implemented, that's a very practical use of some things that the master may have, may have just extrapolated and reinterpreted in his own very creative manner. I think that was very much as well happening a lot at that time in Japan because Japan was in a turmoil uh, with opening up to the West. So you can see actually lots of people doing very similar things, uh, studying esoteric Buddhism and having their interpretation and teaching oh, that agree. to people. Right. You know, it's a turbulent time. We've got a, a lot of martial arts lineages actually kind of stemming from that, that time that the founder of Aikido was again alive and, and thriving during that time, trying to develop a very different form of spiritual movement and calling it Aiki. Uh, you've got a lot of uh, people coming to grips with what does it mean to be wholly Japanese? Are we part Western? What is the what is the Meiji Restoration done? And I think during those times of uh, a little bit of flux or a little bit of just being kicked off our knees, we, we tend to reinterpret things in a much more creative, uh, less bound by all the, the rules, we should do it this way, we, we must follow that way. And from those times, I think growth comes about. And maybe it takes that little bit of unbalance to give us the, the room to be daring enough to take the next step. Before we started on this little concept, uh, we <laughs> talked, we could talk for hours here, we talked about um, Pacific hand uh, movements. Um, in the West nowadays, a lot of people within Reiki and as well other kind of spiritual practices, a lot of people practice Japanese hand mudras like, for example, Kuchikiri. Um, often it's taken from books or the internet. Uh, what do you think about people actually practicing it and teaching it uh, and, and how do you interpret it? You know, I think I've I've toned down. I was a ultra traditionalist as a younger guy, and probably bullheaded in regards to that thing. But I think we need to split it into two camps. Uh, the people that that want to practice it are coming to the table with a lot of passion, uh, hopefully some good intentions to uh, learn a spiritual practice. Unfortunately, they're they're left to the dogs when it comes to deciphering whether X, Y, or Z teacher is authentic in his or her interpretation. Uh, the other camp says that, boy, if it's not a lineage link and if he doesn't have 15 degrees and he doesn't have his master's you know, impression on his forehead, boy, he's not authentic. Uh, specifically, though, with the, the Kujikiri, I, my own feeling would be to urge a little bit of restraint because uh, so much uh, kind of BS has really been publicized on what the Kujikiri isn't that a real tangible, pure vessel 
person that wants to learn it is either turned off by the amount of, of garbage out there or just doesn't know where to start. So I mean, technically, the Kujikiri is, uh, specifically Kujikiri and Kujigoshin Ho, are, are taught to every single Tendai priest. It's not a very a secretive thing. It's, uh, it's a part of a ritual, not a specific ritual within itself. Uh, so it's like extrapol extrapolating amen from the Lord's Prayer. We wouldn't, we wouldn't deify it as its own practice. So we're, we're a little bit lost on, on how the, the Kujikiri itself is taken apart as a separate practice, but um, it does need to be transmitted uh, not only the basic parts, because anyone, as you know, can look on the Internet and find the correct hand postures, a uh, couple extraneous uh, exoteric mudras. Very few of the real mudras are given on the Internet, but the exoteric or open mudras are. Uh, the esoteric or secret mudras uh, are vastly overstated. Uh, and then, primarily, what, what does one use this or hope to enact? Uh, th there's a lot of responsibility in those kind of practices. So uh, unless we had a teacher where we could trust he or she had come from some uh, pure spot to do this, there wasn't, there wasn't a monetary gain or they, they weren't doing it to put another notch on their belt, uh, I would urge a little restraint. That's why people, especially uh, with the advent of the Internet, really need to be careful about learning those type of things. They may experience it from one person's point of view, but I'm not sure it's really being transmitted these days. Yes, and that sort of brings us to what you've done in many ways in that you're bringing Tendai Buddhism to the West and that is uh, quite unique, I think, that there are not a lot of Tendai priests who are Westerners, for example. There aren't too many, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, and aren't we lucky to have found one? <laughs> and, and one as nice as you, of course. I think that... Bringing it across, you know, it, and, and then trying to teach Westerners who do have a different understanding of how things are passed along and, and taught to how Japanese have done that can be quite difficult. How do you feel that uh, in the West that we can really retain the true essence of the practice? Totally agree, totally agree. The, the primary wonderful part about Tendai is it's based on pessimistic... Uh, positive spiritual development. And, and by that I mean it, it takes a degree of not having something thrust down your throat. You, you, need, to, you need to challenge these teachings, but not against your teacher. I'm going to find out that he's wrong and I'm going to expose him. It, it takes uh, developing these teachings to a point where you, you look at them inside and you need to find out uh, why were specific teachings given? Why why in meditation is this or that form or dictate or mantra given? And you really have to chew it, swallow it, digest it, and let it go. Uh, th those stages are critical. So I think the West is perfectly situated for that. We're probing. We're, we ask a lot of questions. We, uh, we don't always take it at first grasp. Uh, but, it, but underneath we have... We have a want to be comforted by some truth. It's just we may not embrace it as quickly as a, as a Japanese audience does, where group mentality and ultimate trust is given right off the bat. Oh, he's a priest. He must know what he's talking about. He'll somehow tell me what I need to know. And, and well, that spiritual salvation stuff, yeah, he'll get to that one day. Uh, where I think here in the West we're, we're almost dramatically involved in our own spiritual development, 
on a great level. So I had a teacher uh, training up on Noshino-san, a real desolate mountain outside of Nara, and I'm just getting ready to go home after a, a big, long training session, and the, and the master, who I just view as Yoda walking on clouds, comes up and he says, Oh, Jian, you know, you're, you're just so lucky. You, you get to go down into that city and practice this stuff. And I thought, well, what are you talking about? I mean, you live in the clouds, you eat, you eat berries for breakfast and chew on pine cones for dinner, and isn't this great? And he said, no, no. He said, even the gods get bored. And I think his, his message there was about uh, it's easy to be a holy man on the top of a mountain. It's really tough to be slightly spiritual while you're paying the bills, going to work, someone's cutting you off. I mean, to maintain compassionate insight amidst the the real tangible parts of life that's that's the tough mission yeah we've had in within the system of reiki over the last 20 years you know a number of teachers who have made claims which haven't been what well, have turned out not to have been true about their own historical origins for example and yet the people who may have practiced their teachings have said well you know i really enjoyed the teachings and i got a lot out of that and it's very disappointing, obviously, to find out that the person, you know, as you were saying, you can set them up there in this position as teacher. How do you feel about that? If the teachings are taught from a place of someone who perhaps the motivation is wrong in why they're teaching what they're teaching, and yet the practices, you know, they may have taken them from quite a solid background, for example. How does the student sit with that? Right. I think the, the worst possible thing that could happen is we become a teacher too quick. I think it's much better to become a teacher uh, past our time, to, to have missed our slot and become a teacher after we're more fully mature. That's why um, I think in my own case, I'll speak here just from personal opinion, it's so comforting to have living, tangible uh, senior teachers that I can bounce ideas off of. If I were to be cut off from all of my advisors, uh, counselors, confidants, uh, personal spiritual resonators, I, would, I, I think I would feel uh, a little bit out of place because I'm not at that position to, to be able to do without that. Some people may, may be, uh, the Dalai Lama, I'm sure, uh, doesn't need to be spiritual advisors, but yet he still may have them. So in our own case, I think a, a, a true spiritual teacher does need that backdrop to be able to have uh, those those sounding boards to test ideas off, uh, to, to get advice. So if we if, if we come to the board as, as a newborn student, I'm out here to study Tendai, I'm ready to go, who do I study with? We're, though, left to decipher, is our teacher at that point or not? So I would urge people to, to ask your teacher about their own teachers. Are they completely independent in and of themselves and is, is everything their own best guess, well, then you're really going to have to trust what they have to say or their own interpretations or, or uh, uh, manipulation of the truth. Hmm. And, and that may be in a, in a good manner or in a bad manner. That, uh, some wonderful creativity can come out of that manipulation. And some unbelievable horrors can come out of that too. I think it's, uh, as with anything human, there's, there's a dark and a light. So I, I have urged the, the students that, that learn with me to, to bounce even the ideas that I give them off other teachers, off other students, and hopefully off life itself. Uh, Gion wasn't put on the earth to, 
to handle all problems, but uh, my specific view of Tendai Buddhism is always bordered by a lot of views on both sides of the pond, both uh, both here in the West and uh, securely, securely cautioned, um, advised, and counseled by my seniors and uh, some very, very good friends who I've, I've spent the last 17 years uh, making in Japan. Yeah, that's excellent advice, Sensei. Thank you. Mm, sure. I just have one more question. Is there a history of healing in Tendai? There is. As, as a matter of fact, one of my uh, personal disciples is doing some PhD work uh, just on that. We have uh, two specific uh, strains or schools. One is a is a method called Kajikito, which is quite close to uh, spiritual healing in the West, uh, with uh, sometimes been misinterpreted as expulsion, uh, kind of taking out negative energies. But in Japan, it's, it's viewed as actually both both ways, putting in spiritual medicine and extrapolating spiritual maladies. Uh, Kajikito is a highly advanced practice that takes a, a, a lot of training and a lot of insight, a lot of purity to be able to captivate, I think, the the pure power that it takes really to heal someone. Uh, the, the other strain is a method of similar to, to spiritual counseling that we might have here in the West, pastoral counseling, uh, that deals with uh, energy. Uh, again, I'm going to go to the word manipulation, but manipulation in a good sense. Finding where we're stagnating spiritual energy and using some spiritual or theological concepts to help the the ailing person, whether it's a spiritual malady or a, or a, a physical malady, find the best route to healing themselves. So from that point, we, we might be seen as more Taoist type of healers. Uh, we're not specifically giving someone the, the elixir to, to make them better, but we're giving them the tools to allow themselves to become uh, more healthy. Hmm. These, these are things which I think are just beginning to crack the fabric uh, here in the West, and even if you if you attempted to research them in the in the in the East, in Japan, and those type of areas, there the very very little documentation, and, and just really need to be resurrected by some some interested folks who are willing to put the time in to uh, to translate the material to get it out there. Could you also just give us a, a brief description about what teachings you do teach, because you do teach the Western. Uh, sort of approach, and, and I think it's called Tendai Lotus Teachings. Right. Uh, Tendai Lotus Teachings was, was developed uh, actually under the recommendation of a teacher that I was studying with in Japan prior to getting ready to uh, relocate my family to the West, and he recommended uh, a website, and back then, this was in the, the mid-90s, that was unheard of in Japan. They were just experiencing the Internet and wouldn't it be great to have some Tendai teachings in English? So we, we put together some translations of material. And following that, uh, they had made a recommendation that there was a TV program that they interviewed me on, uh, Hie no Hikari, which is Mount Hie's personal uh, television program, that uh, wouldn't it be interesting to expose to the West some developmental and really articulate teachings that could, that could go places, could do things, rather than have a bunch of stuffy heads write more books and uh, and uh, priests talk amongst priests, shouldn't we develop something that's a little more practical and grassroots? So Tendai Lotus is uh, primarily 
involved in lay practices. It's not a monastic movement. We're not asking anyone to leave their homes. I myself am a, I'm a very much a lay holder, a wife, children, I'm very involved in my community. But how to take those those classic Tendai teachings, uh, reinterpret them in today's uh, avenue. What are today's stresses? What are t today's uh, conflicts? Uh, what are the benefits that we have today that we didn't have? Uh, 20 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago. How can we leverage those? And then uh, find a way to develop a cadre of personnel that can transmit those Tendai teachings uh, in a very viable way. We had uh, four of my students uh, ordained last year just to, to try to build that cadre up. You, you have one in your neck of the woods down there in Australia. So I think if things like that can happen, uh, Tendai stands a chance of impacting the West on not only a tangible level, but having a lasting impact where people say, boy, this is a system which isn't a lot of fluff, but I see some people completely changing their lives and altering who they are in a very, very positive way. I want to do that too. Yeah. Uh, talking about that uh, and, and your training in Japan, you've got a book coming out. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yes, sir, I do. Uh, it's about to be published. We, we had just published a series of more academic translations out of uh, Hong Kong dealing with these esoteric practices. Uh, but there's another book uh, about an experience at seminary uh, with a, a temporary uh, title, uh, Trekking Through Hell to Find Heaven, that's uh, in the editorial stages. And I think it will uh, just expose people to a little bit about uh, what Japanese Tendai Seminary is about. Uh, but it's also given in a tone where it's not particularly Gion's story. It's, it's a story that anyone can tag along for a ride and, and find a lot of, of spiritual residence, whether they're a fluent Japanese speaker in the middle of some archaic monastery on the top of Mount Hiei, or they're, they're looking for spiritual peace in their everyday life. So I, I'm hoping it's, uh, it's made it through a couple iterations of uh, editorial uh, slayings, and we're, we're going to hopefully bring it to, to print here soon, hopefully uh, in the autumn. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. Fantastic. Thank you very much for giving me the time. I think your, your podcasts do a wonderful service to people, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Sister. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.